The news this week has been overwhelmingly about one issue, Afghanistan. The Biden administration's withdrawal of American troops followed closely with the timeline that was set by President Trump last year to remove all U.S. troops by this summer. But President Biden has come under increased scrutiny from Americans on both sides of the political aisle over the speed of that withdrawal, the images of chaos that ensued in the capital Kabul this week, and the incredible uncertainty that the lack of U.S. presence in the country has left behind. The Taliban is back in charge, and with them, fears of the return of human rights abuses towards women and girls, fears of threats to the modernization of the Afghan economy, and concerns about the Taliban's willingness to guard against terrorist groups who have historically used Afghanistan as a base from which to attack America. But Afghanistan is far more complex than most Americans realize. It is an absolutely stunningly beautiful country with an unforgiving terrain, and its location in both geography and history has made it a prime target from international incursions for centuries. The Americans aren't the only international force that have stormed the Afghan nation and then exited and left an opening for the Taliban. In fact, the history of this country is littered with outsiders coming in and leaving it a mess. This week, Politicon is really excited to welcome one of America's leading experts on Afghanistan, Dr. Jen Murtashasvili. She is the director of the Center for Governance and Markets at the University of Pittsburgh, and she's one of the globe's top minds when it comes to the developing nations in Central Asia. She'll help us unpack the developments in Afghanistan over the past week and shed light to how they relate to Afghanistan's history. Was the U.S. wrong to withdraw from the country when we did? Can the Taliban be trusted at all to govern in any different way than they did before? And how the heck are we going to get along? Murtazashvili, yeah? Yeah, I'm married for love. Murtazash. <laughs> Can you say it for me? Did I get even close at all? Uh, Murtazashvili. Murtazashvili. You could just call me Jen. Well, but I, I want mean, to introduce yeah, you correctly. Murtazashvili. Yes, yes. First of all, why? What? What? I absolutely love Central Asia. I don't know why. I'm fascinated by Central Asia. The fact that you have made it your life is sort of fascinating to me. Why? It's just like all this coincidence. Um, I ended up. Uh, I. I studied Russian as an undergraduate, and I ended up in Moscow uh, during the war in Chechnya mm -hmm. in like the 90s. Remember there was this war, the Russians were bombing Chechnya, and I was studying abroad in college because I was flunking my Russian classes, and I had to study abroad in order to uh, get my Russian up to where it needed to be because I had to pass an oral proficiency test in a foreign language to graduate from the program I was in. So I went to Moscow, was, was studying Russian, and there was this war in Chechnya, and I had no idea about like Chechnya or Chechens. Right. I, I studied Russian and Soviet stuff, and I was like, "There's Muslims who live in Russia. How how did <laughs> I not know about this?" Um, and I'll tell you a very personal story. I, I live with a Russian family, and uh, the the brother, the, like my host brother, his best friend, fought in Chechnya, mm. and they had a very good friend in their group that was from Chechnya. And you could see the anguish in this young man after he had returned from battle. Uh, 
ah. uh, from fighting Chechens. And his best friend in, in Moscow was Chechen. It was just something that really struck me. And I said, why don't I know anything about this? I've been studying you know, post-Soviet politics for two years as an undergraduate at Georgetown, never learned about the Muslims who lived in, in Russia. So I got very interested in that question. Um, be, I applied to go to the Peace Corps when I was in um, college, at the end of college. And they said, oh, you speak Russian. We're opening up all these programs in the former Soviet Union. Where would you like to go? And I said, Uzbekistan? They said, nobody wants to go there, <laughs> right? please. See, I would be one of those people knowing none of the language whatsoever who would, who would really want to go to somewhere like that. But I got lucky enough to go with UNICEF um, to Afghanistan in 2007. And, um, and so ever since then, I mean, I always loved Central Asia, but having ever since then, I have been fascinated by Afghanistan, Tajikistan for, you know, I guess similar reasons. Do you speak Dari at all? Yeah, so I was, I ended up as a Peace Corps volunteer in a Tajik-speaking part of Uzbekistan. Oh, interesting. In Samarkand. Okay. So I don't know if you, you I'm sure I know where it is on the map. I don't, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, so Clay, we're going. Please! <laughs> we'll do an yeah. episode there. <laughs> we're going. It is no, I'm not joking. You think I'm joking. I would, I'm not listen, joking. You we'll wouldn't, make this you wouldn't have me argue whatsoever. I would love to do that. But I mean, Afghanistan to me has always been, and I know you were in Uzbekistan, but um, Tajik, Tajikistan, for those folks who are listening, speaks essentially. They're very similar. You could do better than this at this than I can, but they're very similar. Many of them are Pashtun or from the, or if not Pashtun, they're from a similar ethnicity or, or uh, it's very tribal in the area, but they speak the same language in Tajikistan. Tajik and Dari are the same language, but Tajik is in Cyrillic. Dari is used Arabic script, script and all that. So I'm fascinated by it. Um, oh, wow. So you know this. Oh, I'm listening. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm deep. Uh, okay. I, I care. Uh, people who, who listen to the podcast have heard the story before, so I won't bore them. But I, I have worn this necklace from Afghanistan since I got back in 2007 with its little lapis on it. Um, because I'm fascinated at the beauty of the country and having been fascinated by being there and meeting the people and seeing the just, I mean, how gorgeous and amazing the people are and the landscape. I spent a lot of time doing a lot of research when I got back also. Um, and the history of Afghanistan is um, complex. It's been very up and down for the last 40 years <laughs> or so. I'll let, I want you to speak to that a little bit more. It's also a country that, you know, People seem to love to invade, but never have any success in doing so, uh, whether that be the communists who tried to take over from the Soviets who tried to take over in the 80s to, you know, America did not try to take it over, but certainly went in and tried to uh, to be was a controlling force for a while. We see what has happened um, with that in the past few weeks. Um, what is it about Afghanistan that makes it's so important. So many of these things that we hear about going on in Afghanistan, they're happening in other places in the world, too. You know, women are oppressed. Uh, governments are dictatorial. But we don't go there. What, has, what makes Afghanistan so valuable to so many people? Its location is this, as this, uh, you've heard of the great game. So it, it ha it's this crossroads of empires. It's been at the crossroads of great power conflicts. Uh, the reason that the United States went in actually didn't have much to do with that. It had to do with international terrorism. Yeah. Uh, but the Soviet invasion prior to that had a lot to do uh, with the, you know, the Soviet Union maintaining its position. Uh, it, it, 
they were seeing Afghanistan fall apart, actually. The, people may not understand, but the Soviets invaded in 1979 because the country was already falling apart. There was an Afghan, 1978, there was a, a revolution in Afghanistan. This is really important to understand, to understanding what's happening right now. There was an Afghan Communist Party, and the Afghan Communist Party killed the president in a coup. This Communist Party wasn't just communist. They were crazy communist. The Af- they were, you're talking about, just to clarify, the Afghan, the Afghan communists. Right. The Afghan communists. They were so radically communist that Russia, the Soviets, were looking at them saying, fellas, <laughs> like, calm down. Uh, you know you've like, gone you, too far, Gwen. <laughs> you are not going to win. And so they had this revolution in 1978, and they went nuts. They tried to change society overnight. They tried to get rid of private property. Prior to they that, tried though, to Afghanistan had been relatively well-developed and calm, correct? And if you talk to many Afghans, they will tell you that – you know, hey, Europeans, Americans, while well, you were killing yourselves in the hundreds of millions, hundreds, think about World War I and World War II. How many hundreds of millions of people died, right, during that period? They said we had peace, and then you're telling us we're like a warring people? This is a very recent phenomena in Afghanistan. Yes, there were conflicts. Yes, there were wars. Uh, you know, the Brits tried to invade a couple times, but, the, you know, the, this this idea that it's this warlike society, um, you know, we get this impression because they've been invaded, right. and uh, they're just looking for dignity. and And I have a lot to say about that. And so, and so, and I, and I mean, all of this is very important. But obviously, we we all want to get to the the more recent developments. the The Soviets came in because they saw the country falling apart. They saw this communist government overthrowing the. Um, Afghan people, uh, Afghan government, they came in, they invaded. They were not incredibly welcomed themselves by the Afghan people. And so the Mujahideen um, was formed, and that it was a group of Afghan rebels, I guess. Could you call them rebels at the time? They were fighting Absolutely. against these Soviets. Yeah. Um, the United States helped to fund them to beat mm-hmm. back the Soviets. They were able mm-hmm. to take over. Um, and the Mujahideen was uh, a member. One of the members of the Mujahideen was Mullah Omar, right? So, what did he? No. Do? Oh, he was not Mullah Omar. No, was not a he member was of the not. No, never. Oh, correct the me, Mujahideen. Please. No. So the Mujahideen. This was, you know, the groups that. I mean, there's a number of groups. Some of them, maybe some of your listeners have heard of Ahmed Shah Massoud. Uh, he was killed. You remember there was this Afghan leader who was killed two days before 9/11. Uh-huh. Um, and the cameraman went into his office and, and were doing an interview with him. They were two Arab journalists, and they blew themselves up, blew him up, killed him. He was one of Afghanistan's uh, Mujahideen leaders. Um, the Taliban and the Mujahideen didn't get along. The origins of Mullah Omar and the Taliban came from when the Mujahideen groups ran Afghanistan um, in the 90s after the Soviets left. And there was just sort of chaos because these groups were fighting with one another. So the, the Taliban saw this, said, we need law and order. So the, so the right. Well, I knew that was where we were. Uh, that's where I was going to head. But I want to make sure that we clear up the mistake that I made, because I and many, I think, who watch especially American media have been always under the impression that the Mujahideen begat the Taliban because they were similar fighters who took over. And you're saying that the true history no. is that. 
not the Mujahideen and the Taliban were not the same. The Taliban fought against the Mujahideen. Yes. And so when people say that the U.S. supported bin Laden, it's not true. Interesting. Um, See, this no, is why we have you all. here. <laughs> yes. Clear it up. So the Mujahideen, the Taliban came and kicked the Mujahideen's rears. Um, the Mujahideen had, it was all these different factions. Um, and th when the Soviets left, there was a vacuum of power. And these different Mujahideen groups who were from different parts of the country ended up fighting each other more than coming together. Were they tribally based at all or no? Or were they ideological uh, Some based? of them were, uh, they were all Islamic, right? So they were calling for an Islamic state, not in the way that the Taliban did or, you know, ISIS has, but they were very much, um, you know, fighting for Islam because that was the contrast with the communists, right? And that's actually what the U.S. was. There wasn't a secular group. All the secular people in Afghanistan, most of them were allied with the communists. Mm. So, and, and they weren't doing a very good job. Um, so there were not non-Muslim groups, not Islamic groups that were fighting against the Soviets. They all, um, I have to assume, and again, I don't know this, I'm asking, did they all have different interpretations of, of Islam and Sharia, perhaps? I mean, the Taliban came in yes. in, 90, in the mid-90s and took over and, and implemented what we all realize now was a very, very strict and conservative interpretation of Sharia, right? Exactly. And many point to the Taliban's interpretation of Sharia as being really, some people say it's sort of based in Pashtun, deeply Southern Eastern Pashtun values. Others will tell you it has these real Saudi influences in it that are really alien to Afghanistan. Um, so, and the Mujah... No, go finish, please. Well, the Mujahideen, they were, they really represented a much more indigenous kind of Islam that was much more tolerant of difference. Um, you know, I'm in, I'm in touch actually with some of the Mujahideen, you know, former leaders and, and uh, writing, uh, beginning that to write some works you do on not how. Every day, folks. You know, I talk to the Mujahideen every once in a while. We're <laughs> chilling in the yes. chat rooms. <laughs> well, some of them. Uh, governed, you know, I'm I'm trying to understand how they govern minorities, and they did a better job of it. Obviously, they were much more inclusive than the Taliban group, the Taliban who have emerged. And so the Taliban came in in 1996, and they responded to what they saw as a vacuum, anarchy. There was a lot of corruption and fighting among these Mujahideen groups uh, because they represented different ethnicities. There was n the international community had checked out, you know. Nobody was paying attention at all to Afghanistan at this point. The place was awash with weapons. And so the Taliban came in and they said, we don't like this. This is really corrupt. All these Mujahideens are not doing a good job. And so they formed this movement that was based on law and order. And we're going to stop all the corruption. We're going to stop you know, the violence. We're going to bring order to the country. And then, then there was fighting between the Taliban and the Mujahideen. The Taliban had a message right? The Taliban had a very compelling message. You see it now, right? On TV. Um, I, if people are paying attention compelling to if what you, they're compelling saying. Compelling if you are using a, if you are, if you subscribe to Islam, if you are an adherent to Islam, it has a, I won't say tangentially, but it, I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly, a, or at least was not a universal um, interpretation of Islam, 
but it, it, ha- yeah. it came from that, the base of Islam, correct? That was their message? Exactly. Their message was on this very sort of strict Islamic interpretation. And they said, you know, if you do it this way, we won't have corruption. We're going to go back to our roots, screw these foreigners, you know, coming in. This is an Afghan way of doing things. Uh, the Mujahideen, they're all foreign stooges anyway, and they're corrupt, and they're involved in the drug trade. We're not going to allow the drug trade. We're going to impose the strict rule of law. We're going to have peace and order, and, uh, and Islam will be our guiding ideology. So I, wanna, I do want to fast forward a little bit and then look back some after we get, uh, get mm-hmm. a little bit more to current day. They, they ran the country from 1996 until 2001 when the U.S. invaded and, and drove the Taliban out of power in pretty short order. Um, and then, as we all know, and if we didn't know, we've been reminded this week, the U.S. has stayed in Afghanistan for the past uh, almost, almost 20 years. We're coming up on a 20-year anniversary this year, it would have been. Um, and at different times, we have had different goals. Of course, rooting out terrorism was the initial goal. Finding Osama bin Laden was also a big part of the initial goal. Um, and then after Osama bin Laden was captured in Pakistan, a lot of the U.S. attention turned more towards preparing the Afghan army um, and the Afghan troops to defend their own um, country. And then it has, of course, been very controversial here in the U.S., from President Obama's administration, well, from President Bush's administration, really, but especially in Obama's and definitely in Trump's about removing U.S. troops from Afghan soil and pulling us out of this 20-year war. Um, I'm going to fast, I'm going to hit a few bullet points and then I want you to correct anything I say, but I want to ask some questions about this past week. Um, obviously, we know that last year, President Trump, President Trump, um, held true to one of his campaign promises from 2016. He, uh, he, met, he, he promised he would get troops out of Afghanistan. He sent Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to uh, Qatar to meet with some of the leaders of the Taliban. And if I'm not mistaken, did not include the current Afghan government um, in the discussions very much, um, but essentially agreed to some sort of parameters with the Taliban and the U.S. government that would see the U.S. troops pulled out of Afghanistan by the, early, the first half of this year. Uh, we know he lost the election, and so Joe Biden came in and had, it sounds like, a choice to make. He had a promise that he had made on the campaign trail to end the Afghan war. He had a treaty that had been signed by Donald Trump um, promising to remove American troops by the first half of the year. And he had what I imagine his intelligence must have, must have shown him, um, and we're hearing reports that it showed him, was still a somewhat tenuous situation when it came to the Afghan troops' ability to, or willingness, I'll ask you that in a second, to fight off the Taliban. Um, So we know what he did this week, this past week, um, uh, or this past month. He did pull out American troops, almost all of them, and over the past Three weeks, really? (laughs) Has it been more than three weeks, four weeks? The Taliban has slowly taken control of different provinces all around um, Afghanistan. And as of Sunday, had taken over Kabul and officially uh, overthrew, I guess, relatively peacefully in Kabul at least, overthrew the Afghan government and is now declared the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. So... Now we got the history, all the way back to the 70s. <laughs> You're going to come teach my class. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> um, I, just, I just watch a lot of you on the news, so I know what it's about, what, what's going on. Um, tell me, let's go back just um, 
just a few months. And let's talk first about this decision that the Biden administration made to pull out. He told us in his speech on Monday to the nation that um, he had been, that his team, his milita- the military, the State Department, had been made aware to some degree or had been made to feel like the Afghan forces were ready um, and capable of fighting. But in his words, they did not want to fight to control, um, to to hold on to their government. Is that, do you think that's a fair assessment? Do you think Afghan troops didn't want to fight? I think it's complicated. I think on the one hand, they, did you see the president get on an airplane with allegedly $169 million in cash? President Ashraf Ghani? Yes. Yes, Yeah, he got the hell out. He was ready to go, yes. (laughs) The president, just just to clarify, the president of Afghanistan, before, before Sunday or on Sunday morning, early, uh, on Sunday. left on Sunday the country before the Taliban had actually even come into the city itself. He got. Would you want to fight direct, for him? Well, <laughs> okay, arguably, but 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 community. Do you think that's the reason? I mean, bear in mind they had taken over. The Taliban had taken over all of the country except for Kabul prior to the time that he left. He was Correct. up until the moment he left, arguing and saying that Afghan forces will not seed to the Taliban, we will fight. So is it fair to say that him leaving would be why they wouldn't fight? I mean, he didn't leave until after they no. had all lost. No. It's, so there's two things that were going on. First, I think we have to pay attention. You know, All of us have been just paying attention to Afghanistan for the past couple of weeks. We're watching these cities fall. Many, The government only controlled 30% of the country over the past five years. Like the amount of territory that the government controlled uncontested was like 30%. And you say so that by, la- war- by land or by population? Uh, by land. Okay. By population, yeah. how much do they control? Oh, it's more because it's the cities they didn't right. control. They controlled- but the territory. Right. right. So you had these Kabul, you had Mazari Sharif, you have some of the larger cities, but around them is top. So this has been going on for a very long time. And so the longer the U.S. was there, the worse these outcomes were in terms of internal security. The U.S. presence undermined the Afghan government. This is the story that we are not hearing about. Well, tell me, because I don't understand what you're saying. How did the U.S. presence undermine the the government that the U.S. government... Funded. Sort of put up, right? I mean, the yes. U.S. government and the U.N. helped choose Hamid Karzai in the first place. Ashraf Ghani was a U.S. Yes. citizen until he became president of Afghanistan. Exactly. And that was part of the problem, is that we chose some lousy people to put in power. Ashraf Ghani spoke English. He had an Ivy League PhD. He ran the country into the ground over the past six or seven years since he's been in power. John Kerry negotiated an agreement that put him into power over Abdullah Abdullah. I think looking back now, it's obvious I argued at the time Abdullah would have been a much better president. He had much more legitimacy in the country. Now, Abdullah Abdullah than, is the chairman of the Council of National Reconciliation. It, it, so yes. explain what that is. Uh, the High Council for National. Well, it's kind of an office that was given to him. He was uh, There was another round of elections in 2019 that were terribly fraudulent. 
and it wasn't Abdullah ran against Ashraf Ghani. They they ran against each other twice in 2014. Uh, Abdullah won the first round of elections. There was this runoff between Ghani and Abdullah, and Ghani miraculously won the second round. Uh, but it was so contested and so mired in corruption that a guy named John Kerry, U.S. Secretary of State, had to fly into Kabul and broker an agreement between these two men because there was no clear winner because everything was so corrupt, right? The first round wasn't corrupt when Abdullah won. I mean, there was some corruption, but not the extent you saw in the second round. Kerry put his finger on the scale, put Ghani into power, Everybody in Washington loved him, spoke English, PhD from Columbia, anthropologist, worked for the World Bank. He came into power, centralized authority, played a lot of politics and ethnic politics, you know, um, really went after the former Mujahideen people who he saw were a threat to his power, these Northern Alliance people especially. A lot of people saw him as trying to impose some kind of Pashtun hegemony, hugely corrupt, as we see. The U.S. kept pouring money in. The outcomes were bad. He couldn't control territory. So he was he unable to control territory outside of the cities, you're saying? Yes. Outside of and Herat and Kandahar. The and army the was losing morale for a long time because now, they're did the facing US know this once or again, Should they have known this? Yes, they should have known it, and some people knew it and chose to ignore it. They just and and I, I should be fair though. They didn't choose to ignore it over the past two years because one of the things about the intra-Afghan talks that were happening is that the U.S. kept pushing, putting pressure on Ghani to participate in this process. Ghani wasn't ignored. They wanted to make him part of the process from the beginning with the realization that the government controls such little territory that you have to make an agreement with the Taliban or this is going to go on forever, right? Ghani says no. He dug in. He was a real centralizer, a real authoritarian. He says, I'm not going to give up power. I'm not going to listen to the Americans. I'm not going to go negotiate. I understand not wanting to negotiate with the Taliban, but the fact of the matter is, is they're kicking your butt. So either you negotiate or have a power sharing agreement, you do some kind, and, and they had much more leverage at that time than they have now. Ghani refused. And he dragged his heels, dragged his heels, dragged his heels, waited for Trump to lose the election, hoped that things would change, dragged his heels, dragged his heels, hoped that Biden would reverse uh, Trump's decision to withdraw. I think all of us who listen to anything that President Biden said over the past 10 years would understand that he wasn't going to change his mind about this. The writing was on the wall, still hoping, still hoping that the U.S. would stay. The government had very little legitimacy. So in your mind then, what is, is there, did the Biden administration mess anything up here? Did they do something wrong? Obviously, over the last few days, we've heard uh, certainly a lot of uh, Monday morning quarterbacking from both sides. Republicans who were for the withdrawal two weeks ago are against it today. Um, some have tempered their criticism and focused specifically on the the mechanisms of withdrawal, the way it was done, supporting the withdrawal, but saying it should have been done slower in a different way. If the solution was always, if the, if the end result, it sounds like Trump realized this, 
and perhaps Biden realized this, if the end result was always going to be, whether it's three weeks or three months, the Taliban will end up taking control of Afghanistan. What, what could the Biden administration have done differently or better to make what we've seen happening over the past few days not happen? So I completely agree. So the the Biden it looked like the Biden administration was going to leave, and regardless of how you feel about withdrawal, like ultimately I felt that the U.S. effort wasn't actually helping Afghanistan, right? Um, so I felt okay with the withdrawal decision. But was it Help- helping? Was it helping deter terrorism though? I, there's a lot of terrorist groups inside of Afghanistan still, um, and we and don't other see. In other countries, um, and I didn't see the threat compared to other countries. Um, you know, as significant, there was chaos in Afghanistan with the U.S. there. And I think one of the things that we should think about think about this for a second. You see how easy the Taliban took over the country. Imagine, the, you know, the spring is fighting season. They were ramping up for this. They knew that the U.S. was going to withdraw. Imagine they did this with the U.S. in country. And that's what I think maybe some in the Biden administration were looking at is the possibility of the Taliban taking over all of these cities. The U.S. was in an advisory role. They were not in a con- they were not doing combat operations. Well, I want to right? come back to that um, in a second because I want to ask, but I want to get into talking about how the Taliban has behaved over the past few months. Right. Um, by first asking if we weren't benefiting Afghanistan with the U.S. presence presence there. Were we not at least, at least many people would argue, that we were at least keeping the Taliban from reenacting some of this harsh, almost draconian system of of justice and law and government that they enacted in the late 90s? Um, Were we not protecting Afghan women and girls from oppression under the Taliban by staying there? And would that alone not have been a valuable reason to to remain? Because a lot of people are making that argument. I I hear them. And I don't want to say that everything that the U.S. did was bad. I supported the U.S. effort. Um, But the past couple of years, I really changed my mind about a lot of things. Because you have to recognize, yes, many of my friends... You know, my my cell phone right now is ringing off the hook with friends of mine who are absolutely terrified, and I hear them, and I'm we're trying to help them. And in fact, we have a whole effort at the University of Pittsburgh right now to help people uh, apply for asylum. I can and talk are these, to you so about these that are specifically bit. people who are in country on the ground now who are in terrified. country who are terrified, and many of them are my friends. And Afghanistan has benefited so much from the education. Afghanistan has changed dramatically over the past twenty years. It's going to be very hard for the Taliban to rule the way. They they did. The problem is, yes, women are going to face enormous challenges if we're looking at the cities, if we're looking at the rest of the country, the big picture, stepping back, the countryside has been ravaged. It was like uh, 2,500 Afghan military uh, soldiers have been killed just this year, first six months of this year. Uh, since 2013, one-third of the population of northern Afghanistan has been forcibly displaced. Like, we're not seeing the humanitarian crisis that has ravaged this country, you know, especially for the past 10 years. Uh, people, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of Afghans have died. Well, right? I mean, I think you'd find, uh, I think you'd find that 
argument, and I'm not, it's not falling on deaf ears here, but I think right. you'd find that that argument would fall on deaf ears to some who would say that the rights of women and girls to be educated, to work, to leave their homes on their own um, is, is more important than some of those other things. And that's something that people can disagree on um, reasonably, but they are both important issues. Um, but I, I want to ask Very, you, both important. But I want to ask you about the Taliban. Ta- Taliban, is this a Taliban 2.0? You know, you talked about the idea of, um, you know, what if the Taliban had overtaken the countryside back in May um, in, when the U.S. government, when the U.S. forces were on the ground? Um, the, the press conference that was given by the Taliban spokesperson um, this week, uh, as well as a lot of press reports from them, the Taliban themselves, have suggested that they were always just waiting for the U.S. to leave, that they knew that they would be able to, people have asked them, why, did, why were you able to take over so quickly? And they have said, we, we knew that we would be able to take over quickly. We weren't surprised because we have been, as you said, laying the groundwork, talking to tribal leaders, talking to regional leaders, and essentially saying, we're going to come in once the U.S. leaves. Just knowing that makes me think the Taliban knows better than to try to take some shit away from America. If we're there, they're not going to pull that crap. So they knew better than to try to take the country over from America. Um, something they didn't necessarily know back in 2001, right? Uh, so they learned at least one lesson. America can kick our ass if they choose to. Um, is it possible? And I, the last thing I ever want to or will be is a Taliban apologist. So please don't think I'm doing that. But I do want to know, is it possible that they will run the country in a different way than they did between 96 and 2001. They say more rights for women. They say they can work in certain parts of uh, society. They say they'll be a part of the government, etc. I don't necessarily trust them, but should we believe that maybe they've learned some lessons at all? Or I think I mean, you asked the million-dollar question that I can't answer and that nobody really knows right now. Um, And it's a hard question because I feel just like you do, right? So I think the answer to the question is, have they changed? I don't think they've really changed, but if they want to rule, they have to change because Afghanistan is not the same country that it was 20 years ago. So if they want to rule, they're going to have to accommodate society or they're going to have to rule in like a really draconian manner. Which they did. Really, which they did. So, so, they can, now, so they know they can do that. <laughs> so the, so they the if they want to rule thing doesn't really make any sense. They know how to take over and, and kill people who disagree with them. Absolutely. But that they did that at a great cost. They became a pariah. They were isolated. They're very savvy now. What's changed about them is the savviness. They want money. They want resources. They want to trade. They've been engaged in this like diplomatic mission all with the countries in the region trying to build infrastructure projects. So that's changed. But they also understand that there are enormous costs to ruling with violence. Like you can't just rule, like you cannot just rule with violence alone. You're not going to go very far with that. They learned that, right? That's the other lesson that they could learn. Yeah, we could rule as thugs, but there's going to be international pressure on us. Yeah. Well, to be, uh, to be not fair, but honest, the people who ruled, who ran the Taliban 
the first time they were in power. Most of them are dead now. <laughs> and it is a new generation also. I mean, the Taliban tend to be a lot of more, a lot more at least in their ranks, tend to be younger men. Some of them were children, if, if anything, when the Taliban was in power now. So, you know, the, they didn't allow photography. They didn't allow the Internet, which didn't really exist that much back then. But they didn't allow those things um, in their first regime. But they're sitting around taking selfies now, right? So that's exactly right, right? So the world has changed around them, so they can't govern the same way that they did. It just isn't, I mean, they can try, but that's costly. And they're not going to experience any economic growth doing that, right? They're not going to be able to feed their populations doing that. They understand. But what's changed, like when I see the messaging right now, I, I keep an eye on this on Twitter all the time, like... The messages that the, the Taliban is sending out right now means that they perfect, I get the sense they really understand the grievances of society. They understand like what people are upset about. Um, and they're showing it on social media. So you've seen these like kind of like goofy pictures to us of them going into these palaces and they're sitting around. Have you seen some of these pictures? I've seen the video um, of the, them raiding, the, like being inside of the presidential pa palace. Yeah. Yeah, and they're sitting there, and they got their feet up, and they and and there's these videos of them. Uh, there was one yesterday. Did you see this? Of um, they they they're in a gym, and they're on like a they were on an elliptical, no, and they like that. had that's, no that's idea how to do it. And one of them was like deadlifting, and it was like to us it looked really comical, but to Afghan people it's like what the hell is an elliptical? Why are our leaders having this? Look at these palatial yeah, I mean, but palaces. It, but doesn't that say these are people who doesn't that kind of uh, perpetuate the stereotype that Americans have, that these are cave people, <laughs> essentially, who've lived in the wilderness for the past 20 years, who now all of a sudden have zero experience, zero education, zero really capability of running a country, but now also have all of the power. I mean, power corrupts, right? So uh, when they say women are going to be allowed to go to school, when they say we have granted amnesty to anyone who used to work with the allies. I, I, I have heard differing viewpoints. You've got people on the ground. I know far fewer people on the ground, but I do know that there are people who are in Kabul right now who have said they're not really as scared this week as they thought they would be, that it's much calmer. Yes. Um, they don't feel at fear. We in the U.S., we're seeing images of chaos at the airport, but in the streets of Kabul and perhaps other places, um, at least Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of this week, folks were not as concerned as at least the ones at the airport were. So do, do we have a reason to believe that these guys who'd never seen an elliptical before and are running around like frat boys are actually going to follow through on some of these promises that they've made? Their leadership understands, uh -huh. right? Their leadership clearly understands. It's not clear that the, the kids on the elliptical understand. And I think what we're going to see is a big split between the leadership, which probably wants to moderate and accommodate, I think. I don't know. Like, we don't know. And anybody who says they do is just lying. We mm. just don't know what they're going to do. Well, they're basing uh, they it on the past six yeah. years, the, the uh, first five years they lived. First, they right. Yes. And so, but this time, they, they're talking a talk. They're writing op-eds in the New York Times. And they're the ones who are saying, we're going to moderate. We're going to allow women. We're not going to be the same. It's them who are saying this. The if, you, if you run a country, though, as they did initially, and they, I guess, still say they do, that is rooted and based on 
philosophical, religious, um, ethical beliefs. Uh, you know, obviously you have secular governments that have the rule of law and you have religious governments that have the rule of religion. How much can they moderate though? If they truly believe, obviously, again, Sharia is interpreted in different places in very different ways. Iraq is a pretty liberal government comparative, com certainly compared to Iran. Um, if you, if you interpret Sharia and you're basing a government on Sharia, how much can you moderate? When they say women will be allowed to have jobs within our Islamic framework, like that's the key word, right? So what the hell is your Islamic framework, folks? And how we much can know. you be moderate? We don't know. There's so many gradations of Islamic frameworks. And in fact, the, the, old, the constitution of Afghanistan, the current, well, the current until like two days ago constitution was pretty Islamic. You know, there was a big role for Islam. It was the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Islam was was part of that government. Um, but the, 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 the knock on them is that they were so corrupt, they weren't adhering. Uh, look, at they were just putting money first. They weren't providing security. They didn't care really about values. It was all about, you know, themselves. And so that that's what they're like projecting in their image and, and providing this. Like, I'm hearing the same thing. We see these horrific images and I, I like I, I'm, I'm the same place as you. Like I don't want to come off as a Taliban apologist. I'm not. I was one of these people who never thought the Taliban moderated over these years at all. Uh, but they are there. They are not going anywhere. We can't. But we, like we cannot in, bomb them out of existence. If we couldn't get so, rid of them in twenty years, then twenty one is probably not so, going to do it. I was hoping some for some kind of power sharing agreement. I was upset that Ghani didn't you know, give in it all. And like you saw, he got called to Washington a couple months ago. I don't know if people are paying attention. He flew to Washington uh, and got called into Biden's office and was read the riot act. And, and Biden was like, dude, I'm giving you one more chance, right? Like make a deal with them and nothing. And you see what happened. And so, you know, a year ago, the U.S. had much more leverage. The Afghan government had much more leverage and that leverage is completely gone now. So to, to that point you just made also about people paying attention, um, I know we can't speculate. We can do nothing other than speculate, sorry, um, about what will happen in Afghanistan in the coming years with the Taliban in charge. We still don't know yet who the leader is or who will be in charge of the government. They haven't said. And according to the press conference they did this week, I don't think they've decided yet either um, what the government will look like or who it will be. But can you, living here in the United States, <laughs> watching American media, living in Pittsburgh, which is a pretty multicultural but also surrounded, a blue area surrounded by red areas, <laughs> um, how much is American going to care in two weeks? If, if the they Taliban don't. moderates and we don't hear that much about them, um, I imagine if I'm a promoter of President Trump, which God knows I'm not, if I were, I'd say, look, he negotiated this deal with the Taliban and they have moderated like he promised, they promised him he would, they would do. Look how great I was at foreign affairs. And, you know, well, he might end up being right in accidentally. <laughs> but also, if they go back to forcing women to wear burqas, if they t force women, girls out of school, if they, if they take rights away from women um, in the way they did 20 years ago, Americans seem to be very mad about that today. 
Will we care in six months' time, four months, two months' time? Um, and will we care enough to go back in and try to do anything? Do you see in a future for America's involvement in America, invo American involvement in Afghanistan at all, no matter what? Not while, not while Biden is president. I think he has been so adamant. Uh, you know, if you paid it, he had discussions with, he fought with, with Obama about this. When Obama wanted to do the surge in 2009, he opposed it. He said, let's just do a small counterterrorism operation. Um, so I don't think, I think, and you heard Biden's speech, right, which was pretty like, I'm getting the hell out of here. Uh, I thought his speech was particularly cruel, um, you know, given the pain and suffering of so many people. But does that uh, matter? Does that? I mean, I actually that's that's the first time I saw you speaking on TV was right after the speech when when you said I'm yeah shocked. there was not there was not much apology or shame or you know being holding oneself accountable for the actions. But did it resonate with Americans? I mean, you're still I mean you still live in the U.S. You know how Americans are. Oh, absolutely. The, the messages of I'm not going to send another American woman or man to die for a fight that they won't fight themselves. Wasn't that what a lot of Americans will cheer? I mean, isn't that the kind of attitude that a lot of folks, even people who didn't vote for him, have had over the past five years themselves? And I understand them completely. I don't think that the U.S. is going to go back into Afghanistan anytime soon, not to fight for women and girls. Right. I, I think that that is that's done. We've tried it for 20 years. And I think that the the picture of them not fighting for themselves, um, you know, is sort of the nail in the coffin to that. I want to take a few questions from listeners because um, I could talk to you forever. Um, but we have some very good, relevant questions that I, I think you would be great at asking. Paul um, from Miami asks, is the Shia Sunni split still relevant in Afghan politics? The split very much between the so. two, it is, you're saying, very much so. How so? Yes. And many of the people, the, the Hazaras or the Shia, you've got great audience. Yes. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the split between the Sunnis and the Shia is, is quite something. Um, and, you know, the, the Taliban have been going after and, and affiliated groups, the Shia minority, for years. Uh, there was a, you know, the Hazara, a suicide bomb. The Hazara, the Hazara right? Yeah, the Hazara ethnicity who are Shia. But when you look uh, at the map of Afghanistan and you see, like, the New York Times has a map of Afghanistan and it says, here's where the Taliban has taken over. That one little portion, the donut hole in the middle of the country the Af of Afghanistan, where it still says government controlled, but essentially just means that area the Taliban has not taken over. That is the Hazara region in, in large part, isn't it? That, that central area, Bamiyan and those places. I haven't seen, but the, I haven't seen that map, but I think the place they haven't taken control over is Panjshir, which, which is where the Northern Alliance is. Is that in the middle of That's the country? The that's in the middle of there. Okay, they're right next it. door to each other. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, um, but you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and they went into Bamiyan with a very light footprint. Um, so this is what's fascinating to watch is that there were such battles between the Shia and the Sunnis in Afghanistan before, but now yesterday was a major Shia holiday uh, in Afghanistan and the Taliban took all these photos. They went to Shia mosques. They sat down with the Shia. They celebrated together. And the images that's coming, that we're seeing, right? I mean, of course, it gives us such great hope, 
right, for the future. Okay, they get it. That's what I'm saying. Their images, these videos that they're doing is like brilliant. They're showing that they understand what everyone has been upset about. And they're saying, calm down. They become very good (laughs) politicians. The question is whether they will stick to this and what incentive do they have and what are going to be the tensions between the leadership that probably wants to moderate and the foot soldiers who've been fighting these battles who are probably much more radical. Right. So are they going to put up with this? Are they going to revolt against their leaders? You know, another thing is that the Taliban, uh, you know, everybody knows that they've gotten substantial support from Pakistan. Right. And that's another big story in this. What made the, the, the Ghani government and Karzai look so illegitimate to people is that like, hey, they're puppets. They're American puppets. They're not really our government. Now with the American gone, Americans gone, I think to many Afghans, going to turn the tables a little bit. And the the Taliban may look like Pakistani stooges to many. They already do to many. Yeah. I mean, they do have some Pashtuns do move into the the Peshawar area. So there are some ethnic similarities with some Pakistanis, right? So that... Yes. But the financing, the logistical support, you know, we talk about the Quetta Shura, right? That was the big, I mean, the Quetta Shura... That's in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. The, the Taliban have been headquartered in Pakistan for the past 20 years. So Pakistan's provided a lot of support. And that's one of the reasons why you know this war seemed so uh, difficult to end, because the Taliban always had a safe haven in Pakistan. The U.S. was never able to figure out that issue. American America itself has been sort of obviously waiting cautiously hopefully responsibly, to see where the Taliban will go uh, in the next, in the coming weeks, months, years. Um, I've, I've heard Boris Johnson say similar things as well. Even Russia has said that they would wait to see what the Taliban, how the Taliban behaves before they will decide whether or not they will recognize them as a legitimate government. Um, are there countries that are already rushing to align themselves with this new government? Are there countries in the region who just want to be friends with whoever's in control of Afghanistan? Like, are they, And who are they? A lot of countries. So uh, I, I think I saw a report this morning that said China would recognize the Taliban in, in exchange for, they'd give them money in exchange for them uh, clamping down on terrorists. Oh. There are a bunch of Uyghurs you know the oh, you know the Uyghur situation, course, right? right? And China. so China cares about Afghanistan because of Islamic extremism, and, and the, so and, that's and actually, so Islamic extremism has also been a problem in China because Islamists are or the Muslims are upset about China's treatment of Uyghurs. Is what you're, is that what I'm understanding? The Uyghurs, yeah, and there's a bunch of Uyghurs. So the Uyghurs, but you know China has exaggerated this, and, and there have been a couple of you know, terrorist incidents in China by the Uyghurs over the past 10 years. And so then China just engaged in this genocide against the Uyghurs to stop it. And so you have about 2,500, I've seen estimates about 2,500 Uyghurs fighting in in Afghanistan. You have a lot of Central Asians who are fighting in Afghanistan because they're upset with their governments. And there's also, I mean, to make the, God, this is so complicated, right? There's ISIS, no. There's ISIS fighters inside of Afghanistan. Do you and fear, ISIS in the Do you fear I don't I wouldn't want to stop you but we do have I do have to go have to let our folks go in a minute. I could talk all day. Um 
somebody else from, where is it, where is it, where is it, where is it? Carla from Dallas um, asks, despite it all, did we at least convince the Taliban that it's not in their interest to harbor terrorists? So groups like ISIS that, you know, and this, this desire from China to have them stop um, harboring or supporting or, or asking them to clamp down on terrorism, are they going to? Do they have the ability to? They have the ability to, and, and they are there. And the question is, once they're in power, what will they do? And this is where the Taliban have a lot of leverage over the United States and others to ask for concessions, hmm. right? To ask for money. It's very convenient to have these people hanging around uh, because you know that that's all the U.S. really cares about. That's right. all Russia cares about. And that's about. what we went into. That's all this, China cares That's why we went into Afghanistan in the first place. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Well, you know what? I, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and talking about it because it's fascinating. I mean, you're the, you're the expert on this, right? And, and I thank you for teaching the audience quite a bit about it as well. Um, how can people follow you? I know I watch you on AG, uh, Al Jazeera English. Um, where else can we see you? Where else can we learn about what you're doing, and, and you said you have an organization that's helping refugees. Tell us all about that. So I'm the director for the Center for Governance and Markets at the Graduate School for Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm on Twitter quite a lot. That's where people can follow me most. It's uh, J and my last name. And we'll make, sure we'll make sure that yeah, that is on Yeah, just put um, a link in, in to that. And I, you know, I welcome your questions. And I, you know, I apologize if I couldn't answer any of this in real, you know, simple ways and easy ways. It's so complicated. We could talk about this for hours. But I just want your your listeners to walk away with that there is no black and white here. And anybody who's selling you that, it's it's not easy. You know, I supported the withdrawal. I thought that twenty years we ha we it became so difficult. But I was really heartbroken with the way that the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan. I thought that was really shameful. We knew that we were leaving. We should have been better prepared. I have a bunch of volunteers right now who are working with Afghans to help them apply for asylum. We set this up about 10 days ago, had about 100 requests, 10 volunteers. Now we're well over 1,000. Uh, you know, Where can people find out got, about how to help with that? Uh, just go to my Twitter feed and, uh, you know, we're setting up a website. I mean, this all happened so very quickly. Uh, we, this was all on the fly. We didn't expect the government of Kabul to collapse on Sunday. So follow me on Twitter. Um, you know, we're looking for donations to help. We have like 40 volunteers, but we're so overwhelmed um, that I, I want to amp up what we're doing um, to make sure that we're responsive, like not over-promising and under-delivering to the people who are just trying so desperately to get out. So last question. We have had 20 years fighting against the Taliban, um, trying to keep them out of Afghanistan. Uh, they are, as you say, here, and they're not going anywhere now. Um, the U.S. has some interest, obviously, in figuring out how to work with them in the international community, since they're going to be a part of it. And the Taliban, obviously, wants access to the money it's got here in the U.S., wants access to a lot of resources that the U.S. has control over. Um, how the heck are we going to get along with them? I, I, it, it's going to be a million. That's the million dollar question. I think that um, Biden is kind of done. 
I don't think he's going to be paying much attention. I, I listened to his speech. I think he's done with the region. I think he's saying it's fine as long as you just you know leave us alone. We're, we don't really care that much about what you're doing, frankly. And I think that's the way that the U.S. is going to get along. I really worry about that kind of approach. Um, and But the Taliban is now, and just this is what everybody has to watch today. We saw a very peaceful sort of first 48 hours. I woke up this morning and saw a lot of protests inside of Kabul. It was flag day in Afghanistan. People want their flag back. It is not going to be easy for the Taliban to rule Kabul, a city of 5 million people that's actually quite sophisticated and quite modern, the way that they did 20 years ago. 20 years ago, Kabul was a sleepy town of a half million. It's a bustling megalopolis now of 5 million people who've been educated, who've seen the world, who have the internet. They are not going to be able to run things the same way. And if this kind of uh, violence continues, I don't think the Taliban will be able to hold power for very long, and you're going to see a return to civil conflict. That's what really worries me. I hope every side in this can negotiate um, I know it's really Pollyannish. It's like very optimistic. I just hope that people can accommodate and understand after 40 years. It's a lot.